All right, Acts chapter 11 is where we're going to be today. So if you want to grab a Bible, there's some located in the seat pockets in front of you. Uh, or, by all means, take out your phones. I won't think you're texting or looking at Facebook uh, during service. I'll assume you're looking at the Word of God. Uh, Acts chapter 11 is where we're going to begin. And as you guys make your way that direction, let me just remind you where we were last week in chapter 10 is we saw uh, Peter actually been, uh, being given the ability to take the gospel to the Gentiles, to a particular Gentile, a man named Cornelius. He was a centurion, meaning he was in charge of a hundred Roman soldiers. So he was a man of some means and of some power. And what we're going to see is Peter uh, took the gospel message to him there in Acts chapter 10 by the word of the Lord. Now, what we're going to find when we get into the message today is the first half of the message is actually a repeat of last week where we looked at Peter taking the message to the Gentiles at Cornelius. So it's going to cause some of you to want to pump the brakes Maybe I can tune out on the entire first half, because why would God need to repeat himself? And I want to encourage you that the reason uh, God chose to repeat himself wasn't just so that he could make Luke write down more words. I mean, think about that. Luke is writing this by hand on papyrus, and God had him repeat himself. Uh, the reason is he really, really wants us to get it. <laughs> He is repeating himself intentionally because he knows this is a message that we would otherwise uh, just skim over the top of. He wants us to understand it. Anytime the Bible repeats itself, remember this is the living, breathing word of God. It's for emphasis. And so we're going to look at that at the beginning of the message today. And the fact that God chose Peter, a Jew, to in particular take the gospel message to the Gentiles and to show Peter through a vision and then through his own personal interaction that the gospel was intended for all people. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So if any of you here are a whosoever, the good news is you're included in that message. And that's what Peter's going to learn is all about who are the whosoever's. And that was everyone. And so we're going to see at the beginning of the message the word going to the Gentiles. And then at the end of Acts chapter 11, we're going to see the word now growing in the Gentiles as the Gentile church is going to take off like wildfire. So without further ado, let's pick up in Acts chapter 11, verse 1. And now the apostles and brethren heard, excuse me, heard that uh, the Gentiles had also received the word of God. And so in the Bible, whenever we look at Scripture, remember there's only two groups of people. Uh, there are the Jews, God's selected people, the children of Abraham and of a particular family, that of Jacob, and then there's everybody else. And so if you're in the everybody else camp, you are a Gentile. And now the word that they've heard is that, this, that the word of God actually came and was given to these Gentiles. And we have to ask, when the Bible's only split into two groups, did God have preferential treatment? Does he love the Jews more than he loves all the rest of us? And the reality is, uh, no. He does not love the Jews any more than he loves the Gentile. But in fact, he chose the Jews to be a select group of people to bring his word to them, to be a light to the Gentiles. They were to be a, a called out, a special assembly that would actually point the, our, to our need for a Savior. They were to be, as is said in Isaiah chapter 42, 
verse 6. This is what Isaiah pins down 700 years before the birth of Christ. He writes, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness, speaking to the Jewish people, and will hold your hand, and I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the Gentiles. This is the reason God selected this otherwise obscure family and this one particular group, sons of Jacob, to become Israel. It's to be a light to the Gentiles. They were supposed to be a group all about inclusion, not about exclusion. Now, unfortunately, by the time we get to the age of Jesus, what they had done is they'd taken the word of God they were given, they'd taken this special calling that they had gotten from God to be a light to the Gentiles, and they'd made it very much about exclusion. Here's all the reasons why you don't measure up, Gentiles. Here's all the reasons why you don't stack up to fit into our perfect little plan. And so now what has happened is because Peter has taken the word of God to the Gentiles there at Cornelius' house, his word had gotten back to Jerusalem, and they'd heard that the Holy Spirit had come upon this group of Gentiles gathered. The exact way in Acts chapter 2 it happened for the Jews. And now the light bulb starts to click on. Wait a minute. How is it that this group that was not as good as we are given the Holy Spirit? And we'll see as we continue the issue they have. In verse 2, And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, the circumcision contended with him, saying, You went in to uncircumcised men and ate with them. And so as Peter enters into, he comes to Jerusalem to answer to what's taken place there at Caesarea in the house of Cornelius, they begin to question him. Now, isn't it interesting that their questions start with, wait a minute, you ate with them? I mean, they didn't say, did the Holy Spirit come upon them? How dare you bring the word of God to them? Their big beef, no pun intended, their big issue they had is that they sat down and had lunch together. Imagine that. You would think of all the issues they could bring up. Why would they be so upset, so incensed about food? And the reality is because God has made it clear through Scripture, and we know this even through our own bellies, that food is very special. There's a special relationship that happens when we eat together, when we dine together. And I'll I'll try not to be uh, too creepy with this, But the reality is, when we sit down and you and I both partake of the same food, there is some type of relationship that happens, almost an intimate type of relationship when we're both digesting the same things. And we see that God places a special importance on this throughout Scripture because in Leviticus 23, when God says, I'm going to give you my feasts, my holy convocations, what evolve around? Food, right? All revolve around eating. And the idea for the children of Israel was that they would sacrifice to God, they would have a holy barbecue, and they would also eat the portions of the sacrifice they were allowed to eat. Do you see what God was doing? He's saying, I'm going to consume this sacrifice that you're also going to consume. It was a relationship they were able to have together and share with God. Now, when you fast forward all the way to the time of Christ, What's the big issue the Pharisees have with Jesus in Matthew 9? It wasn't that you're preaching to these sinners. It wasn't that you're talking to them or just hanging around with them. It was, you're eating with sinners. How dare your master eat with these people? Why? Because the importance of dining together. When you think about the very pillars of the church in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, what are they? They're the teaching of the word of God. 
their fellowship, they're the breaking of bread, and their prayer. Two of those things, two of the four pillars revolve around eating and dining together. Then go all the way to the end of your uh, book that's in your hands, to Revelation 19, and what do you find is there as the bride is presented to the bridegroom, Christ Jesus, the bridegroom, the church is the bride, what's the big celebration? It's the supper of the Lamb. So you see the very importance that God places on meals and eating together. And then we get to our text and we wonder, why did they make such a big deal about it? Because it's a really big deal. That's the reason they made a big deal about eating together. And I want to use that as an encouragement to you guys when you think about, should I have this person over? Should I go uh, to lunch? Should, should we partake of food? Should I take that time to spend with this group, this couple, this person? Uh, the answer is yes, because there is something very special that happens when we dine together. It's that big of a deal to the Lord and to us. Now, Peter begins then in verse 4 to explain himself. Uh, but Peter explained. They call Peter. They question him. And they say, you got some splaining to do, Peter, in the words of uh, Desi Arnaz. And he, he begins then to explain in verse 4. But Peter explained it and said in order from the beginning, saying, I was in the city of Joppa praying. And in a trance I saw a vision, an object descending like a great sheet, let down from heaven by four corners. And it came to me, and when I observed it intently and considered, I saw four-feeted animals of the earth and wild beasts and creeping things and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, Not so, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has at any time entered my mouth. But the voice answered me again from heaven and said, What God has cleansed you must not call common. Now this was done three times, and all were drawn up again into heaven. And so Peter goes on to share this vision, this same vision that took place in chapter 10. And what he said is, as these animals, these four-footed creatures, and the beasts of the earth, and the birds of the air, descended down, what he saw were unclean animals. The word in the Greek is koinos, which means common, ordinary, or stripped of value. That's what the word meant. And by the way, it was the same word they used to describe Gentiles. They were koinos. They had no value. They were unclean. And so what he sees is these animals dropping down. No doubt on there, there was, there was swine dropping down. And I shared with you, it's the first time we see pigs in a blanket ever in the Bible. Come on. That was funny last week. Maybe not as much this week. Should have saved that for later. So Pete, he's hungry. He sees pigs in a blanket coming down from heaven, and, and he says, and the Lord tells him, rise, kill, and eat. But what's his response? Not so, Lord. Which, by the way, is always a contradiction of terms. You can say, uh, I don't think so, buddy. Uh, no way, Jose. But you cannot say, not so, Lord. If he's your Lord and your master, then we must do what he tells us to do. And so Peter says, not so, Lord. He goes on to say, I I've never partaken of any of these unclean, these koinos animals. And God replies to him in verse 9 and says, do not what God has cleansed, you must not call common. You must not call a koinos. Now, 
what, what are some areas we looked at that we have a tendency to call common in our life? I shared this with you a bit last week. Three different groups. Uh, first of all, ourselves. Secondly, others. And thirdly, situations. That our tendency is to look at ourselves and what we can do in our life and no doubt to look back at our past and go, man, I, I can't do what the Lord's called me to do. I'm too ordinary. I'm, I've been stripped of value because of the sin of my past. I don't have anything I can present to God in this spot. And so we, we take ourselves out of an opportunity to minister because we call ourselves koinos or ordinary. I don't have any cleanliness. And yet, when you fast forward to 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, this one's worthy highlighting in your Bible. If we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so the promise of God is that if we simply confess our sins, yes, Lord, I am, I am woefully short on all the things that are necessary, and yet I give that over to you, then he is faithful and just to cleanse us. Now that cleansing, uh, when it comes to the point of salvation, is one time for all. When I say, Lord, you've got to take everything. I can't do it anymore. I'm giving it all to you, Jesus. Positionally, understand you are secured at the right hand of the Father in Christ. Positionally cleansed. Practically, on the other hand, I think we can all agree we're working this thing out daily. And so the, the phrase there that John used is an idea of a, a cleansing and a continual cleansing. It's be ye being cleansed. I am cleansed for all time. And yet, in my life, the Lord's still working some stuff out. It's a continual cleansing process. But going back to the text at hand, what Peter is hearing from the Lord is, whatever I say I've cleansed, you can't say is uncleansed any longer. You don't get to mention that at any other point in time. In fact, Isaiah 61, to go back to the Old Testament, when you look at what the Lord said through the pen of Isaiah for those that he does to give righteousness to, in Isaiah 61.10, he says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments and a bride adorns herself with jewels. Think about that. The promise of Christ in your life is a cleansing and then a giving a robe of righteousness. We get to take our filthy rags and give it over to him and say lord here's my mess and then his his gift is a, a robe of righteousness for all of eternity now when we revert back to our old ways and we start to call ourselves unclean unclean and common and ordinary what we've in effect done is is cheapened the gospel we've said lord you can cleanse everything but you can't cleanse this and we do that for ourselves and we do that to others and we do that to our situation as well. But there's no way you can get glory out of this spot, Lord. Not so, Lord. But what God shows is over and over again in every spot, he has allowed. And by the way, if you're going through a tough season, um, it has either been directly allowed by God or he has placed that in your life for a reason. He wants to work through something in your life so that he can get the most glory for the most people. So he's allowed this thing in your life not to call it common, but to realize he has perfectly placed you in a position so that he can be glorified. Now, 
Peter's explained what's happened in this vision. He's beginning to build the story, and then in verse 11, at that very moment, he continues on. Three men stood before the house where I was, having been sent to me from Caesarea. In verse 12, and then the Spirit told me to go with them, doubting nothing. Moreover, these six brethren accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And so Peter says, look, I'm listening to what the Lord's saying. He's telling me don't call anything unclean that I've cleansed. And, and then I use this same word, koinos, that we use for Gentiles. And who's at the front door? Gentiles. They're right there knocking on the door. The Spirit told me to go with these men and not to doubt anything. But Peter very intelligently takes six men with him. In part, I believe, so he could have some witnesses to whatever God was going to be up to. He's like, look, this story is going to be unbelievable. And if I don't take some witnesses, nobody's going to buy it. But I think beyond that, just taking witnesses, it was also about taking people so that they could grow and learn. Anytime the Lord is up to something in your life, and I, this, at this point I'm speaking to myself as much as you, I want to encourage you to take people with you. Not just so you can have witnesses, you can make sure you don't get in trouble, but so that others can see and learn from that experience. Take people alongside if you go to a hospital visit, take people with you. If not for people in my life intentionally dragging me along, taking me when I wasn't, in my mind, qualified, I was too ordinary to go, I would have never grown into these things. Years ago, I got invited to a, a men's retreat, for example, and it was uh, just a group of guys. We fasted for a day, and we hung out in these little, they looked like little hobbit holes. They were in the side of a mountain, and overlooking the Mississippi River, and we just would go and hang out by ourselves for an entire evening. But this particular group of guys, one of my friends that went along, uh, he couldn't walk. He had the gout so bad in his feet that he literally had crutches. And this is a 40-year-old guy. He wasn't an older gentleman, he, he, but he could not hardly walk. And so we ended up getting him a handicapped room up at the top because he couldn't make it down the hill to stay in the cabin. So he stayed up in a handicapped suite. And before we went to bed for the evening, he was crying out to the Lord. He's like, guys, I don't, I don't know what to do. I've changed my diet. I'm trying everything. Would you just pray for me? And we got an opportunity then to lay hands on my friend and pray over him. Lord, please deliver our friend from this. The next morning, uh, as we gathered back together, uh, to, my, to my surprise, my friend, right out of his cabin. <laughs> no crutches, no limp, no pain. Why? because the Holy Spirit decided to heal him. And had I not been invited along to go with those men, I would have never witnessed that. Do you understand? It, God could have healed him if it was just him by himself, but he chose for us to be there so he could see and so that we could grow in this experience. And this happened for these men. They go along with Peter, and they see the Holy Spirit descending down upon the Gentiles. They're able to grow in what God's showing them and also able to witness to what he was up to. Now, verse 13, and he told us how he had seen an angel. Now he's speaking of Cornelius and sharing his side of the story. And he told us how he had seen an angel standing in his house who said to him, send men to Joppa and call for Simon, whose surname is Peter, who will tell you words which you and your household will be saved. And as I began to speak, verse 15, the Holy Spirit fell upon them as upon us at the beginning, speaking of Acts chapter 2. 
And then I remembered the word of the Lord, and he said, John indeed baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If therefore God gave them the gift as he gave us when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could withstand? And so what we see is, as the Holy Spirit was working on Peter, as he was showing Peter there on the rooftop in Joppa, not to call anything ordinary or unclean that God said was cleansed, at the same time he was working on the heart of Cornelius, this Roman centurion. And what I shared with you last time, it still is true, it's that the Holy Spirit is all about unification. He's all about bringing people together, not dividing them. And so if someone comes to you and they say, look, I've got a word from the Lord to share with you, and he hasn't given you any kind of inkling, he hasn't given you any heads up whatsoever, I tell you to be very cautious. If I come to you and say, look, thus saith the Lord, I need you to empty out your entire bank account. I want you to deposit it in mine because, look, the Lord told me to. But if the Lord is up to that, he's probably going to give you a heads up on what he's up to. And so the same it plays out here for Peter. He's working in his life and he's working in Cornelius's at the same time to bring them together. Now then in verse 15, what we see is Peter goes through this story. He says, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them as upon us at the beginning. So as Peter begins to share, no doubt a message that he had prepared, he's got this gospel fireball. He's going to lay it on them. I'm going to let them have it. And as he begins to speak, probably before he ever even got to the peak of his message, the Holy Spirit down upon them, divinely interrupting Peter, which is interesting because when you look at the life of Peter, three different times he was divinely interrupted. First by God the Father, then by Jesus the Son, and this time by the Holy Spirit. The first time in Matthew chapter 17 on the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter's standing there, he sees the glorified Jesus Christ, and alongside him Moses and Elijah. And Peter, not knowing what to say, Gets all excited. Anybody ever had that happen? I'm excited. I don't know what to say. I'm just going to say something. And he says, oh, it's good for us to be here. I'm going to build a tent for Jesus and for Moses and for Elijah. And then the heavens open and stop Peter dead in his tracks. And God says, Peter, this is my beloved son. Hear him. Refocusing the attention on where it needed to be. Now, later in chapter 17, Peter gets asked a question by the Pharisees. Hey, does your master pay taxes, by the way, Pete? Just wondering if he does. Peter, not knowing the answer, but not wanting to say he didn't know the answer. Have you ever been there? He spouts off, yeah, of course he does. And then he has to go, I have no idea if my master pays taxes or not. He heads to Jesus. He gets ready to ask him. And as he's getting ready to ask him, wondering how clunky this conversation is going to be, interrupts him and says, Peter, is it right for a king's son to pay taxes or should he be free from taxes? He interrupts him to share with him, look, I don't have to pay taxes, but so that I don't stumble anybody, I'm going to go ahead and pay him anyway. And so he gets interrupted for the second time by the son. And the third time in this place is Peter has this whole message put together. It's going to be perfect to bring people to the Lord. It's exactly what they need to hear. Before he even gets halfway through his message, the Holy Spirit descends upon him, and they're all wiped out. They begin to speak in tongues. And I share all that to say a couple things. One, don't be afraid of divine interruptions. 
But oftentimes we think we've got to have things just so laid out so that people will come to know Jesus. Or we get things all put together in our day. I'm going to do these things for the Lord. And then a divine interruption comes along. I don't know about you, but every time that happens, I think, oh, man, I'm doing stuff for Jesus. And now these people need me to do stuff for Jesus. I got Jesus stuff to do here. I got it all planned out, Lord. How dare you divinely interrupt me in the middle of my Jesus stuff? That's how we get, right? But, but the real point is, it's the people. That's who God was most concerned about the whole time, was the hearts of these men. And so the first thing I wanted to make was, don't be afraid of a divine interruption. That might be the very thing God wants you to interact in that moment. Secondly, understand that it did not depend upon what Peter had to say. That so many times I think we put this burden on ourselves that if I just could say the right things, if I could just articulate it in, in a certain way, people would come to see the truth. If I could just somehow share with this person that I love and that I care about in a certain way, they will come to know Christ. I just know it. And we put all that burden on ourselves. When what you see right here is God doesn't need us to speak in any certain way. He is looking for willing hearts to do his work. And for Peter in this spot, he was a, a willing heart. He was willing to share. That's all God needed was the vessel. And he allowed the Holy Spirit to descend upon these men. So do not put that burden on yourself that you must share. You must speak in just the exact perfect way to unlock the code. Christ is up to all kinds of things even when we don't know it. Now, verse 17, he said, If therefore God gave them the same gift as he gave us, who believed on Jesus Christ, who was I that I could withstand God? What a fantastic question Peter gives them. I mean, who am I when God wants to do something that I should stand in his way? It's important to realize when he has determined the gospel is going to go forth, it's going to go forth. When Jesus told them in Acts chapter 1, the word is going to go from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and to the ends of the earth, look, who are we to withstand God? Who are we to stop the word from going to the ends of the earth, guys? This is exactly what he told us about. And the real point of this is, do you want to get on board or do you not? The word is going to go forth. And so much of that is true in our lives his word is going to go forth to the entire world. The question is, do you want to be a part of it? You can't stop it. Who are you to withstand God? I would suggest to be in his will, to be a part of what he is up to. It's the most glorious thing you could be a part of. But you and I are not going to have the ability to withstand him. And so the point of this is it's a get-to to be a part of his salvation plans. It's not a have-to. It's not a requirement, but you're going to miss out on so many blessings if you don't get with the program. Now then, verse 18, And when they heard these things, they became silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. Get it. We get it, Peter. Thank you for sharing the story. We finally are beginning to understand. And no doubt, one of those men that was gathered there together in Jerusalem was the Apostle John. Who, when you go back to John chapter 10, this is what he recorded. And it had to have been mind-blowing 
when he wrote down the words of Jesus in John chapter 10, verse 14, the Christ saying here, I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and I am known by my own. And as the Father knows me, even so I know the Father, and I lay down my life for my sheep, and other sheep I have which are not of this fold. Them I also must bring, and they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. Wait a minute. Remember when Jesus was talking to us about other sheep. We wondered what in the world he was talking about, and now they begin to get revelation of what he was talking about. He was speaking of the Gentiles. I have other sheep. They know my voice. And here's the reality. You're all going to be one. You're going to be one flock. You're going to come together. They were beginning to understand and get the revelation and know this, that any time God reveals things in his word to you, it will always end with your jaw dropped open going, Father, i got to glorify you. i got to praise your name because I never even understood what you were up to. Now it's beginning to come into understanding. It's beginning to grow in me. And this is what was taking place. They finally get it. And the gospel can go from there to then Antioch and begin to grow. We're going to continue on in verse 19 as we see the growth of the gospel. And now those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. And so after Stephen was martyred, after he was killed there in Jerusalem, they then all scattered. And as they scattered, they began to take the word of God and speak in all these surrounding villages, which was fantastic. But notice what they were doing is only speaking to the Jews. They weren't talking to anyone else. They were only sharing in and amongst their tribe. But one particular town that was mentioned at the end of this verse that they shared in was Antioch. This is the third largest city in the Roman Empire and the place that God is going to establish the Gentile church, a very important spot. Now then verse 20, but some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene who, when they had Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. And so the news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. And so the message went from only being spoken to the Jews, those, those Hebrew-speaking folks that kept to themselves, to now to the Hellenists, those that spoke Greek in their household. And the word of God was beginning to spread there in Antioch. Word gets back to Jerusalem that this is taking place 300 miles away, and they say, hey, who's the best guy to send? But we're going to send Barnabas, whose name means the son of encouragement. They sent an encourager, not one that would uh, dispel or stop the gospel, but one that would encourage. They sent him in to investigate. In verse 23, And when he came, speaking of Barnabas, and had seen the grace of God, he was glad, and encouraged them all with the purpose of heart that they should continue with the Lord. When Barnabas showed up, what did he see? The grace of God. When he showed up, this was the first thing that hit him right in the face. And his response was he was glad. Understand that. 
that when the grace of God is on display, it is attractive. One attribute our church could have, I hope when people walk in and the doors are opened, they witness the grace of God because it is so inviting. And what is grace after all? But it is getting what we do not deserve. It's God's riches at Christ's expense. Mercy is not getting what we do deserve, and grace is getting what we do not. And so for these Gentiles, did they deserve the grace of God? Absolutely not. Did they deserve the Holy Spirit? No way. And yet here's God on display, giving it to them freely. Now, as Barnabas addresses them in verse 23, he encourages them, good thing, because he's the son of encouragement, and he tells them with purpose of heart that they should continue with the Lord. I think that's important to point out. Barnabas didn't show up and say, look, glad you guys have a church going on, glad it's growing, really going to need to see your doctrine. Going to need to see your mission statement. I'm going to make sure you're following all the rules here. He didn't say, I want to make sure you're adhering to the law. He said, continue in the Lord. The heart is the place he was most concerned about. Why? Because the heart is always the heart of the matter. What God is always about when he's doing a new thing, he is always about the heart of the people. Did they get everything all doctrinally correct? Probably not. Did they follow the law? I don't think so. They weren't Jewish. They would have no idea of the law. And yet Barnabas' encouragement here is continue in the Lord. Press into him. He will be every resource you could possibly need. He will produce holiness and purity and all these things that the law actually points back to. He's going to do that not from the outside in, not by applying pressure, but from the inside out in joy and in gladness and in grace. Now verse 24, for he was a good man, speaking of Barnabas, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. And then Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek Saul. So here's Barnabas. He shows up in Antioch. There's an amazing work of the Lord going on. He rallies the troops and says, Good, God, good job, boys. Press into the Lord. Keep going. But here's uh, Greeks and here's uh, Jews and, and they're coming from a pagan background. They're in the, the third largest city in Rome. And, he, and he's a little bit blown away by the culture, no doubt. Like, what is going on here is awesome. But I don't feel equipped to handle this. But I know a guy. <laughs> I know a guy who eight years ago got sent off to Tarsus, put on the shelf, on the back burner. I'm going to go find Saul. And remember, the person who stood up for Saul the one who defended him in front of the, the early church there in Jerusalem was none other than Barnabas. He had a special relationship. He was already developing with Saul. And what we're told is that he went to Tarsus to seek Saul. I find it interesting that Luke uses uh, this word, seek. He uses it one other time in his gospel account. It's in Luke chapter 2. And the word is used in relationship to uh, when Mary and Joseph took Jesus, now at 12 years old, to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. And, and this was a big deal for families, sort of like our Thanksgiving. Everybody gathers together, and as a family, they take a whole caravan of people from Galilee up to Jerusalem. Anytime you go to Jerusalem in the Bible, by the way, you always go up. And so they go up to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover, this wonderful celebration, families all coming together. And then they head out 
days later. They get about a day's journey only to realize they don't have Jesus. Uh-oh, Mary and Joseph are in panic mode. Which, by the way, if you ever look or think about your parenting and think you're less than stellar, do you realize Mary and Joseph lost the Son of God for an entire day? I mean, they lost Jesus. So anytime I read or think about this story, I feel way better about me as a parent. Like, I've never lost Jesus for a day. What do you think of that? So needless to say, they're in a panic. Like, oh, we just lost the Son of God. And they head back to Jerusalem. And what we read there in Luke chapter 2 is that they were seeking after Jesus. The same word was used. Like parents who lost a child. That kind of passion, that kind of determination, that kind of desperate seeking after. And I love that Luke uses this word again in Acts because it gives us insight to the relationship Barnabas has with Saul. I got to find Saul. I want to seek him. I know God's calling on his life. I know this is exactly what God intended for him to do. And he goes alongside Saul. And he encourages Saul. He does exactly what his name says. He becomes an encourager. Come out of obscurity. You can imagine that conversation. I mean, Saul's been on the sidelines now for almost a decade. Like, yeah, you don't need me anymore. I'm not the right guy. I'm just ordinary. Barnabas would have none of it. Saul, you're the guy. I've sought after you. I want to bring you back. And then in verse 26, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And so it was that for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people, and the disciples were called Christians in Antioch. So for the first time in the New Testament, they are referred to as Christians. And what does this term actually mean? It means to be a little Christ. Do you realize that? That that's the calling that each of us have when we call ourselves Christians. We are saying, I am a little Christ. I'm an example of Christ. I'm a type, not a perfect type by any means, but I am, I am allowing him to live in me and, and, and you then become Jesus for other people. Now, caution flag is going to get thrown up, pump the brakes. I should always point back to Jesus, never point people to me. But then you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, and what Paul says, speaking to his disciples, is imitate me as I imitate Christ. Our call as Christians, as we allow the Lord to purify us from the inside out, is to daily be more and more like Christ. So when the people that I interact with, that come into contact with me, what do they see when they look at me? Just a man? Or they see someone that's fallen hard after Jesus? Maybe not getting it all right, for sure not perfect by any means but more and more striving to be more like Christ. You understand, when you go to Walmart, when you interact with people in the workplace, everywhere you go, when you take the title of Christian, you're taking this Christ-like figure with you. You're Jesus with skin on when you go to the hospital to visit that person. You'd be amazed how moved they are. You'd be amazed when you take Jesus with you what kind of interaction you're going to have. Now, it does cause us to want to reflect and look at how am I doing in my marriage, raising my family with the people that I work with. It, it for sure causes us to be reflective. 
But the reality is, lots of times, you're the only Jesus they're ever going to see. And so we become attractive as we take this on as Christian people, little Christ. Now then, verse 27. And in these days, prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch. And then one of them, named Agabus, stood up and showed by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world, which, was also, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. And so now as the church in Antioch has begun to grow, what we see is prophecy begins to take place. A man named Agabus uh, steps up. And this church that is really essentially popped up out of nowhere. And it caused me, as I was thinking about that this week, to wonder, where, where did this church come from anyway in Antioch? And really, thinking about that, any church come from? <laughs> and the reality of it is, if not by the Holy Spirit, I don't know that any of us would be here. That's the truth. When I get asked about this church plant, and how did we get here, and how did we pick Charleston, and how did we end up in this building, and how did you end up with anybody showing up, the reality is, I have no idea. That's the truth. That's not to be glib. That's just a fact. The fact that any of you are here is amazing. But it's not anything that I did or Angela did. It's a work of the Holy Spirit. He's the one that is up to things in this place. And so what does it look like when God starts a church? It looks like a few different things that I want to put out there. Not putting processes on the Lord Jesus. He doesn't need any process. But these are interesting things to note as we look at the growth of this church. The first thing you notice is in verse 20. It started with them in verse 20, speaking the name of Jesus, preaching the Lord Jesus is what they did. It was evangelism. It was one-on-one, person-on-person, life-on-life evangelism. Now, many of you would say, look, I'm not an evangelist. I don't have that gift. But you know what you can do? Share what Christ is up to in your life. The reality is, for each of us, whatever is the most important thing, that's the thing we tend to talk about the most. With kids, our work, our sports teams, the reality is whatever is the most important thing to you is always on the tip of your tongue. Now, what if that was Jesus? What if it was the work that he's up to in your life? What, is, what if it is something miraculous taking place in your family, in your friends, in your own life personally? What if you just share that? That's how the church begins. It begins as life on life. Someone goes, wow, I don't know what God's up to with them, but I'd like to know more about that. That's that personal evangelism that can happen. Now, the next thing that we see is what happens is then Barnabas shows up, and he begins to encourage. So the church begins with evangelism, a sharing of what God is up to, preaching Jesus as the Christ, the one that can change us from the inside out, and then it begins to encourage We see Barnabas is starting to show up. And yes, he is the son of encouragement, but what I believe about Barnabas is he was very intentional about his encouragement. He intentionally sought out Saul of Tarsus to encourage him and bring him back to Antioch. And I want to encourage you to be intentional encouragers. When someone is put on your mind or on your heart to reach out to, don't delay. Don't wait a few minutes or a few days or a month to reach out, do it right then and there. God is impressing them on your heart for a reason. Be an encourager. Be quick to encourage one another. Now then, what we see is in verse 26, as the encouragement happens, Saul shows up and he 
teaches a great many people in verse 26. What started with evangelism has now grown into a teaching. Paul was sent there. Saul, excuse me, was sent there to intentionally equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Those people in Antioch were being taught. Now, I don't want to rail on any denominational Christianity, so please don't mistake this. But what I have found in my lifetime is often what happens in church is a Sunday morning, an evangelical message, and a call to the altar. Uh, Sunday evening, an evangelical message, and a call to the altar. Wednesday evening, an evangelical message, and a call to the altar. And over and over and over again, we get an awesome, way better than I could ever do, evangelical message. And that seems great, but the truth is there is no growth. And so years go down the road, and we look, and we go, wait a minute, nobody's growing in this. Why, why is this not more natural? And the reality is it's because we spent all of our time as preachers uh, beating the sheep. We forgot to feed the sheep. <laughs> we spent all of our time with the hellfire and brimstone bringing it down and calling people forward that now they think the only place they can find salvation is at the altar. When the reality is you can find salvation any place you desire so long as you truly repent and give it all to Christ. That's the truth. So Paul began to teach the people. He was equipping them. He was, as Hebrews says, the, the, the issue here is one of only receiving milk. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 12 the writer says here, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles, the oracles of God, that you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age. That is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. You see, as we grow in this relationship in Christ, we have to partake of solid food. You need the meat of the gospel. You need the meat of the entire counsel of God to be able to digest. Whatever the Holy Spirit is speaking to you right now, I have no idea, but he is speaking to you on your own level, in the spot that you're in, in the place where you're at, because of the word of God. And so out of teaching, notice with me, it's now grown into what prophecy is able to be shared. In verse 28. And so now Agabus comes forward and he's got a word from the Lord. And anytime prophecy is shared, what we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 3, prophecy is one of these things that oftentimes creeps us out. Like, you know what? I don't know if I want a prophetic word. It seems odd, a little bit weird. I don't think I want prophecy in my life because I don't understand it. But Paul addresses this in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 3. He says, but he who prophesies speaks edification and exhortation and comfort to men. The reason for prophecy is so that you might be comforted. Exhorted, yes. What is exhortation? It's a strong encouragement. Sometimes we all need a little bit of that strong encouragement in our life, right? Need a little bit of a kick to get going, but it's still for the purpose of encouraging. And secondly, to edify, to build up so that you might be comforted. How can prophecy be comforting? Well, it reminds us who's in control. When we get a prophetic word or someone speaks into our life and said, I've got a word that the Lord has given me for you, it should be one that brings comfort. 
because I know that I'm not in control whatsoever, but I know who is. God's in control of this. That's right. I feel so much better about what he's up to. And think about what Agabus is sharing. There's going to be a famine. This seems really rough. He shares this word with them. Hey, guys, guess what? There's going to be a lot of famine and starvation. Thank you for the encouraging word. How is that encouraging? Well, look at how they respond. And then the disciples, each according to his ability, in verse 29, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. They, this they did also and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. And so they get this word of prophecy that comes to them and look at their response. It, it wasn't, better batten down the hatches, boys. It's going to get rough out there. Got a word from the Lord. There's a famine coming. Better get yours right now while the getting's good. No, it was, we got to rally together and help some people. There's some folks that are going to be in some tremendous amount of need. We need to come together. This is our calling, our time. We've got to come together as a people. If not us, then who? Now, this is the word the Lord gave me this week going through this. It's from Amos. I know you guys think he's only famous for his cookies, but he was also a prophet. Amos chapter 8, verse 11. What the Lord spoke to me on Friday was, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. That right now, what we are experiencing in this country, and this started decades ago, is a famine on the land, a famine of the hearing of the word of the Lord. It started rather subtle, but as things have gotten progressively worse, and as a society, things have gone down, now there's a famine in the land. And here, I, I am ashamed to say it, here's what's happened. And, and it really reared its ugly head in March of 2020. Is when the famine got extreme and the pressure got applied, what did the church do? We said, we gotta shut the doors. We gotta keep people out. We can't take a chance on something bad happening. We can't share the word of the Lord. Think about that. As I was crying out to the Lord, wondering what in the world are you doing having us plant a church in the middle of a pandemic? Why? He did not give me an answer until Friday. He gave me an answer. We were called to this place. You were called to be here in your seat right now so you could understand there's a famine of the hearing of the word of God. People are dying all around us. I'm not about a pandemic, something much worse. I'm talking about eternal death. I'm not making light of sickness by any means. It's a real disease, but there's something far more insidious to all of this. It is a famine of the hearing of the word of God. There are people that need to hear what the Lord has to say about their life. They need to be pointed back to Jesus. They need to know that there is an opportunity out there to live forever. Not worry about these physical bodies nearly as much as we worry about our spiritual health. There's a famine of the word of God that's going on right now. The question is, what will we do? Will we take up an offering? And by the way, I'm not talking about money. Don't freak out. I thought he didn't talk about money there. He doesn't talk about money. I'm talking about your abilities. 
I'm talking about what God has put in your hand. The very word God gave to Moses in Exodus. Moses, what's in your hand? I got a staff. Go use it, Moses. What's in your hand, folks? Who has God placed you in a company of? Who has God put you around that needs to hear his word spoken into their life? Not so we can take it and beat them with it, but so we can bring them back to a real relationship. So that they can be nourished, they can be encouraged, they can be comforted. The same can go for you. Be encouraged today. Be comforted that you know exactly what's going on, what God is up to in the midst of this famine as we have the bread of life for people who are starving. The question is, will we offer it to them or not? And so, Father, we thank you, and we praise you for your word. We thank you for this uh, message of thanksgiving, Lord, one that centers around families and friends coming together. And while we, uh, we spend a lot of time feeding ourselves physically, Lord, I'm called into question in my own life. Did I spend enough time feeding people spiritually or not? Father, we, we confess these things to you. We give this over to you. Thank you for the situations you've put in our life. Thank you for the people you've put in our life and the places you've, you've placed us that we so quickly call unclean and ordinary and stripped of any value and you want us to be the word of God. You want us to be little Christ in the middle of those situations. Thank you for placing us there. Father, help us to not look at these as so awful so quickly, but instead to, to dig in and to press into what you're up to. Thank you for the grace you've shown us and the grace that we get to show to others as a result. Father, we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, would you please stand? We're going to end the, the week of Thanksgiving with this song as we transition into a, a Christmas time. But what a wonderful a song this is and reminder to us. So let's all sing Give Thanks. Give thanks with a grateful heart. Give thanks to the Holy One. Give thanks. Because he's given Jesus Christ, his son. Give thanks with a grateful heart. Give thanks to the Holy One. Give thanks because he's given Jesus Christ. His Son, and now let the weak see I am strong, let the poor say I am rich, because of what the Lord has done for us, and let the weak say I am strong, let the poor say I am
Because of what the Lord has done for us, give thanks. Let's sing that all one more time. Give thanks with a grateful heart. Give thanks to the Holy. Give thanks because He's given Jesus Christ His Son. Give thanks with a grateful heart. Give thanks to the Holy. Give thanks because He's given Jesus Christ His Son. And now let the weak say, I am strong. Let the poor say, I am rich. Because of what the Lord has done for us. And now let the weak say, I am strong. Let the poor say, I am rich. Because of what the Lord has done for us. Give thanks. And the church says, Amen. All right, with that said, thank you. Thank you guys for coming. Uh, God bless you guys throughout this week. I want to encourage you to be Jesus with skin on. And whoever you're going to come into contact with, he's got something special for each and every one of you. And you have, you've been equipped with the ability to do that. God bless you guys. If you need prayer for any reason, I'll be up front. Have a good week.